feel like you were born in the wrong era? Do you pine for a time gone by? Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Kaya Handley. Welcome to This Retro Life. It's been a very amazing experience going over to Viva Las Vegas and then being crowned dust and rough to my oxygen. Quite a few people say the first time they ever saw television, in fact, was actually at the milk bar. I feel like vintage clothes is really the way to experience the past. We come out a go-go girl gang because we dance, we wear these cute little outfits. So we took off in our newly polished old trailer and along the way we're in two accidents with it. Megan Hilty falls back on the table and sticks her feet up in the air in full 18th century dress. And there's our shoes. Hey! Are you a collector? Someone who has spent years curating things they love into something wonderful. This week's guest has over five and a half thousand records, but not vinyls, gramophone records or 78s. In fact, he and his orchestra are the first musicians in Australia to release a 78 since the 1950s. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Andrew Nolte. Andrew, so great to speak with you on this Retro Life. Oh, it's my pleasure. Can we start with what your first memory of music is? I sort of got into music through uh, (laughs) a massive love of Elvis Presley. Good. We hear that a lot on the podcast. Do you really? Oh, well, yeah. It It was a bit of a strange journey. I sort of was quite curious on how record players worked when I was very young and uh naturally i gravitated towards my parents turntable and uh went through their collection and they had a well a, you know fairly uh typical collection for you know people of their generation they had a lot of beatles and a lot of elvis and that kind of thing and uh ended up playing a lot of the elvis stuff and before i knew it i was learning the guitar to try and uh, play a lot of those tunes and then my interest in music sort of um, retrograded from there. I sort of always was looking to find what was a little bit earlier or where did this music come from or what was the, what was its roots and its origins? Where did it evolve from? And, um, yeah, <laughs> so the Elvis Records soon, soon became Glenn Miller Records, which soon became, you know, LPs from the 30s and, you know, of compilations of music from the 30s. And then finally I started... Collecting, which has sort of been the bane of my existence as well, uh, gramophone records, which wow. are a lot heavier, a lot more breakable. Amazing. I'm always interested when I hear that people started playing with their parents' record collections. Were your parents quite open to you touching them and playing with them? Were they quite strict in what you could and couldn't play? No, they had quite an interesting collection. Um, like I said, typical of their generation. The only thing they didn't like me playing was probably the Rodney Rood LP. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but everything else was sort of, you know, fine. They had a, you know, a lot of Neil Diamond and Status Quo and Chicago and ELO and all these other kind of bands, and uh, none of them sort of grabbed me as much as the music of um, Elvis did, uh, very early Elvis anyway, that sort of rockabilly stuff. I found that quite interesting, you know. It was reasonably basic and something something you could probably do with a small with a small band, and, you know, when my brother and I started learning music, we used to jam in a lot of those tunes together he was playing bass at the time and uh, i was playing guitar so it was really great we sort of worked up our own little repertoire of elvis tunes you know (laughs) before we'd left primary school so yeah no it was um that was sort of the way in and then when when the jazz bug sort of bit i um started collecting all that stuff um 
throughout high school and then I got into vintage fashion much to the uh, horror of I guess my classmates or my peers <laughs> things haven't been the same ever since yeah. <laughs> let's talk about I'm really interested to find out more about gramophone records especially collecting them now how long did you say that you've been collecting those definitely over a decade seriously I remember working a really lousy casual job at, in, in in a fast food uh, outlet <laughs> and I remember I remember I think I was taking home something like $500 a week and I would put $50 in my car and spend the the remainder, the $450, on just buying records. <laughs> uh, oh, of course, and a bit of, you know, a bit of, uh, you know, a new suit here and there, of course, but um, <laughs> mainly, mainly records. So. so gramophone records, how do they differ from, say, the vinyl that we might be collecting? They're generally 10 or 12 inches in diameter. And they only have one song on each side and they spin at 78 RPM as opposed to 45s and 33 and a third. Mm-hmm. They're highly breakable and they don't transport well. Um, <laughs> as soon as you crack or break one, they're completely useless. Oh. I've, sort of, I've got one right in front of me. In fact, if you sort of look at them, you sort of go, well, this has been around since the day that it was released. And for it to remain in playable condition, that's something kind of special. The sound quality of them is actually really great. They were really what we'd call over-recorded because their technology for their time with sound recording was actually way ahead of its time. The musical output on these records, which some people sort of think, well, they sound scratchy and that through bad, you know, bad reproduction, but it's actually when they're put through a proper player, they're phenomenal. It's like holding the original, you know, original release of any of your favourite bands kind of thing because all these records are exactly that. Mm. They were purchased during the 20s and they'll listen to it at parties and all that kind of thing and here they are on... We know that there's a a huge resurgence in vinyl collection at the moment, not just within the vintage community, but everyone is looking for vinyl. That's why you can only get Kamal in op shops these days. But how challenging has it been for you to build up that that gramophone collection, gramophone record collection? Going back a while, it was sort of difficult because it's not hard to find records per se mm-hmm. but if you want to try to find actual content which you want to listen to particular bands and particular recordings and styles of music it makes it a lot harder to find i listened to uh, jazz and syncopated dance music from the 1920s so stuff like the charleston and all, all those kind of bands which are usually you know 10 or so people in an orchestra these recordings they're a lot harder to find because they got played until they were trashed because mm. they were so popular. Whereas a classical record would probably be played a few times and popped away in the storage. They're usually the ones that pop up the most. So back when I started collecting, it was easy to find 78 records, but they just weren't the ones I wanted. And over the years, they've become easy to find because massive estate sales, prominent collectors in Australia passing away in their um, collections, going to auction and getting sort of pulled apart it's sort of been easier to find stuff which I've wanted since and also since being on radio I've had a lot of very kind donations of records to me which has been also a blessing and a curse because you end up getting a box of records and about 20 of them are what you'd collect and the rest of them are something you've got to find a home for find someone else that wants them and usually usually the rule is the the one record that you really want out of that collection is the one which is broken (laughs) or Played to death. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely <laughs> trashed. Is there a big gramophone record collecting scene in Australia right around the world? In Australia, not since the 50s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
As for overseas, I've got a good friend of mine who's now living uh, over in London, and there seems to be quite a resurgence in the interest of 1920s music. So a lot of people, young musicians and that, will collect gramophone records of their favourite stars from the 1920s, you know, probably very highly collectible kind of records. You've got to have the musical passion first for the music before you just sort of collect them because you can still get this music via other means, go YouTube and all that kind of thing, but it's sort of not the same. It doesn't have the same romance of you know playing it off your phone versus playing it off the original equipment. It's sort of uh, sort of a bit special. Am I allowed to ask yeah. how many records belong in your collection? Last time I did any serious audit, there was something in the realms of five and a half thousand. Nice, that's a decent collection. For someone of my tender years, it is. But um, I've known some collectors who have since passed away, and their estate was in something like 65,078s. Now, I can't even begin to imagine what kind of storage facility you'd need. Well, I was wondering that for five and a half, let alone 65 and a half. Yes, uh, I can assure you that a massive, you know, massive record collection has certainly been the the downfall of many relationships, but um, (laughs) they do take up space. They are heavy. If you've got to move house, they are very cumbersome. It's worth it. I've never questioned whether it was worth it or not, whether a digital means was something more viable. I've always had these records and uh, the good thing about a large collection is is you sometimes forget what you've got. So by the time you think you've heard everything, you can take something out of the pile and go, oh, what a banger. I haven't heard that for a while, so I'll play it and it's great and you get a lot of joy out of it. Do you listen to at least one daily? I listen to several daily, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, as I don't have any... uh, any sort of very close neighbours or that to answer to. I'm not in, a, not in an apartment block. I can have the uh, turntable on as early or as late as I like. Great. <laughs> so I take full, take full advantage of that while I can. You did mention vintage fashion a little bit earlier. This is clearly your main vintage weakness, passion, collection, but, but are there others in there as well? Absolutely. I've been collecting vintage fashion for almost as long as collecting records, and I sort of gravitate more towards the styles of obviously the, the late teens, all the, all the 1920s and the early 30s. And I've got a few suits from the 40s and 50s thrown in there to be, you know, well galvanised across all eras. I found that it's been a lot harder to find uh, men's clothing in recent times. Even even the occasional ugly tie from, uh, the you know, that period doesn't show up anymore. I think it's all been sort of fished out. And I'd attribute that to there being a lot of period dramas which have happened in Australia over the last eight years where a lot of the wardrobe gets sourced in Australia and uh, used for the filming over here. And then it goes back to their central holding wardrobe in LA. They take the entire collection with them and sadly we don't see it again. It is very hard to find a good vintage piece in the wild these days. Yeah, uh, there's certainly some resourceful people out there and I don't know how they do it, but in terms of men's fashion, um, I stand at six foot four. Oh, that doesn't uh, help. (laughs) It does not help at all. So you know, it's got to be pretty special for that for all the start, all the uh, all the planets to line up for me. But I, I do have success. Let's talk about the music that you are so in love with that you have collected. You've now got this great performance uh, orchestra with you as well. You started with Elvis and sort of went backwards, backwards, backwards. Landed in that jazz syncopated dance era of the 1920s. You could have been going forever to the beginning of time. You know, when you look at. at <laughs> that you wanted to know what inspired what, what inspired what, but what made you stop in the 20s? 20th century history in general was probably one of the most uh, interesting times to be alive. Straight after the First World War, 
everyone was wanting to live it up and everyone was repulsed by anything to do with the war. They wanted to, you know, really let their hair down and spend money, which they had for the first time in a long time. Also, technology had caught up to the everyday people by the 20s. You know, everyone had a telephone. Most people owned wind-up gramophone. Everyone had a piano in their house. There was entertainment to be had. There was dancers and, and touring bands from overseas. You know, a lot of bands from, say, San Francisco coming over here, you know, with new jazz music kind of thing. So for Australia, it was it was a very interesting time because we're always just a little bit behind America in mm. terms of our in our fashion and our tastes, especially in music, because it just took a little bit longer for published tunes to get here. Well, when I say technology took a little while to catch up, you see a lot of the technology which we enjoyed throughout the 20s and everything, like uh, radio, all that sort of stuff was um, being perfected during the time of the First World War because war sped up development of um, innovation, mass production, all that kind of thing. So by the time the 20s came around, people starting to get mass-produced radios and all sorts of mod cons as well. I mentioned the telephone, but they also had electricity in general, so... <laughs> Going from a time where you didn't have an electric lamp and you had to have gas lighting and suddenly everything is turned on its ear. Everything is modern. You've got electric lighting. You've got electric fans, electric heaters, little electric cookery. You don't have to have a coal-fired this or that. So in terms of the music, I sort of fell in love with the era and there was just something, really something intoxicating about just the way the bands played back then so intricately yet so relaxed and effortless something which is so hard to imitate uh find big band stuff from the 30s and 40s you know that sort of slightly slower tempo and really smooth tone and a lot of fun to dance to it just doesn't have that same lilt and bounce as the stuff from the 20s for me and whilst i love both i, I have to say i've always been biased towards music from the 1920s <laughs> you know it was like such an exciting era and things were so new in music in a lot of ways you know like the breakaway from playing you know ragtime or light classical operatic stuff which was always collectible you know collected on records you know by listeners the jazz stuff you know you can chart its history right from the beginning just through recorded music you know and i think that's i think that's one of the first things in history you know like you've got like a whole lineage of performers and players which are you know well documented through their recorded works mm. and that is something which is well didn't happen before i mean there's you can hear you know dame nelly melba from the 1880s and 1890s on a record sure but you won't hear every tune that she's ever sort of played or recorded you won't find them Whereas for the 1920s, people recorded so extensively and that there's versions and versions of versions of almost every tune which was ever published, popular music, you know, hot rhythm dance music. And the bands themselves were very interesting, you know, all these very um, formative sort of early jazz groups right at the start of jazz history, they recorded. And you've got all sorts of wonderful and colourful characters which have, you know, recorded through that era like Jelly Roll Morton, for example. And when you start reading about their stories and growing up in, you know, post-World War One America or, or Australia and people who are, like, faced with, you know, social or financial hardship and you've got all sorts of other social elements like racism mm. and bigotry and that long-standing kind of things, it's sort of certain bands and that and certain areas in which they recorded, this music is sort of like a soundtrack to 
everything that's happening. There's certain like hidden messages in in the lyrics. They make sort of reference to you know political climate at the time, or they talk about change. They can get very sentimental. It's a really great window into an era. When you put it in the historical context, when you put it in the social context, it was very clear that music in the 1920s was becoming a more accessible, so everyone could enjoy it, but also that it was such an escape, especially post-war, especially、uh, a way to escape from the poverty that you may have been in or the race tensions that you may have been involved in. It was an escape, and that totally comes through in the jazz. Absolutely. I mean, if you've watched a Ken Burns story of jazz kind of thing, he certainly does talk quite extensively about you know the racial elements of jazz and everything.、Um, a lot of the music which is collectible these days is usually a lot of white jazz music and that on、uh, on record. The stuff which is the rarest to get would be any of your sort of、um, African American jazz bands from the nineteen twenties because. At the time, it was like they were considered popular bands, but their output was very limited because of the recording companies they worked for as well. You know, they had like race labels and all these kind of things where they weren't big companies, and they had a very limited output because a lot of companies wouldn't want to record African American bands. Your passion is super clear, like not just for the music, but for the history and for everything that comes with it, and for music as a conversation starter and a way to tell a story. But what made you want to focus on that? And bring that music to life today. A few reasons, actually. When I started getting into playing music, well, you know, professionally or semi-professionally, however you want to look at it, I played in several big bands in Melbourne, and they did a lot of music from the 1930s and the 1940s, with a little bit of music from the 20s, emphasis on little bit. And whilst I enjoyed playing, you know. Banjo and guitar in these bands, an absolute ball. And you know, I played with them for the last eleven or so years. I sort of found that a lot of the music from the twenties, which I really adored, we weren't ever really playing. Maybe audiences weren't really into it, or something like that. There was a reason why that twenties music wasn't getting played, and I think it might have been because it's just that little bit too obscure. If you're playing a tune from 1925 versus Playing Glenn Miller's "In the Mood," you know, people will get in the mood. You know, they'll they'll pick it up as being an old tune straight away, and it's from like grandparents' days. They'll get it. Whereas if you play something from the twenties, they can't quite latch onto what it is. Anyway, I wanted to experiment with it. So last eleven or so years, twelve years, I've had my dance orchestra, which plays only music from the nineteen twenties, and I think we've done quite well. Even even to the point that last year we released our very own seventy eight <laughs> on the Rivermont label from the United States, and yeah, we're the first to release a seventy eight in Australia since nineteen fifty something. So there is the passion, the hunger there for for nineteen twenties music. I'd have to say, if yeah, if my experience has taught taught me anything, when it comes to having some sort of great Gatsby function or nineteen twenties gangsters dress up ball, you need to have a nineteen twenties band, <laughs> and、uh, I'm red hot on the money with all that. Well, I enjoy playing for dances and that kind of thing, but I find that the tempo of 1920s music is a little bit too hard to keep up with for like later dances, like the Lindy Hop and all that kind of thing.、Mm. They're all dancing the foxtrot in the 1920s and the Charleston, the Black Bottom, and all that kind of thing. So it's it's a very difficult rhythm to try and keep up to for like very、um, open and very. Quick-moving sort of dance positions like Lindy Hop. Is that the majority of what you're doing? Those Gatsby-esque events and and parties, especially as we we hurtle towards. It's nearly a hundred years since the twenties. We're nearly in the twenties again. 
Yeah, I might be famous by then. <laughs> you never know. But um, yeah, I'd say we'd probably do the majority of events we do are usually those, although we do a few jazz festivals and all that where most of the punters don't really quite get what we're about because they might be interested in jazz, which is slightly earlier, or jazz, which is slightly later, and things get very specific, or people all get a little bit bamboozled or clueless. or Start you know, yelling requests bit... for later songs. Yeah, or they just don't quite understand where dance music fit into the whole jazz idiom because some people seem to think that there's actually a difference between jazz music and 1920s dance music. Was it easy to find a group of musicians that shared your passion for this very particular era of tunes? Uh, yes and no. Like stuff from the 1920s, you know, you give it to a, a conventional sort of big band saxophonist and they go, wow, this arrangement looks pretty busy. Like, I mean, this has got a lot of lot of notes happening here. So it takes a certain amount of finesse to be able to do the, the 1920s music justice. Watching some vision of, of bands and orchestras from this period, they were sort of super free-loving, super high energy. Do you bring that to the performance as well? It's so much more than just playing the tunes well. There's always a good touch of uh, comedy in it and uh, and there's always always the need to try and drag people up off their seats Good. because I think the problem is with a with a band which can be mistaken for being a bit of a museum piece when you try and do an every do every every facet of it authentically people sometimes feel that it's a bit of a recital of music from the 20s and they figure to have fun and you couple that element with people getting dressed up in stuff which they don't usually wear and suddenly you've got a very awkward scenario in your hands unless you know how to play the room properly. And after people have had a couple of drinks and get up on the microphone and give them a bit of humour and a few fast tunes and then try and drag up a few of the uh, you know best-looking couples and that kind of thing to dance, suddenly everyone's dancing. It's obviously a lot harder nowadays than it is in the 1920s for people to get up onto the dance floor because it's not something which was natural or necessarily taught to them these days. Why do you think it's important to keep this music alive today, to do what you do and introduce new ears to it because a lot of people will will never have heard some of this music. I think the 1920s really helped musical evolution along. It certainly helped recording technology along, film as well, theatre and writing. It was a very arty period. So to sort of not pay any homage to it or to try and do a good attempt at emulating what they did back then because it's so much damn fun, <laughs> would be to say, well, nothing really happened from 1900 through to, um, you know, the Great Depression. Music being the, sound, the soundtrack of history, it'd be such a pity to not play it. I've always sort of got, like, uh, reasonably positive responses out of people. They just sort of thought, oh, I thought it was going to be like, you know, German marching band music or something, <laughs> you know, like people don't have a lot of not, not necessarily very accurate preconceived ideas of music before the 1950s. Yeah. So who are the bands, the orchestras, the artists that we should be looking up? If we're just going to go right from the top of the list, I'd look up bands which recorded a lot. So Paul Whiteman and his orchestra, Isham Jones and his orchestra, Harry Reeser, who was a prominent banjo player or banjoist, which is a, technically a word. Um, <laughs> Bix Beiderbeck, who was a, a cornet player. And Bix Beiderbeck had a really terrible life. He was one of the one of the many that got onto um, alcoholism through the Prohibition era, and he died at age 31 mm. due to it. So 
and but his music was just uh, so phenomenal. So one of your typical sort of burnt really brightly and uh, and burnt out kind of people. Eddie Lang, the guitarist, fantastic player from the twenties. I'd go definitely uh, Jelly Roll Morton, who was a uh, ragtime and early jazz and stomp piano player. Joe Oliver, Louis Armstrong. I'm sure you could go on. And on and I on. could go and on and on. on. That's only I could keep going until I started hearing, you know, you snoring on the other end of the line. That's only uh, seven that's of that... your five and a half thousand albums. Yeah, there's there's just that much, you know. <laughs> Clarence Williams, you know, Ted Weems, uh, Ted Lewis. Yeah, look, there's just there's so much. And the good thing is that the majority of it is available on YouTube. Great. And it doesn't. There's plenty of reference material online. If anything, I'm finding that young bands these days are actually playing a lot more music from the 1920s than they used to. Well, jazz bands, that is. I mean, my brother plays in like some late 60s surf punk rock kind of band. They don't do music from the 20s. They're but, uh, not delving into the 1920s jazz. No, but he, he plays he plays uh, drums in my band, so he picks up certain musical motifs within the band and sometimes works them into his own compositions so it's interesting how this music can influence you know your ideas in terms of composition what do you think the lasting impact is of of jazz and dance music from this time and and do we still see it in jazz music today some of those influences the main thing was that it was fun it was entertaining and people went out to listen to it to dance to it to be sociable I don't know whether these are things which are necessarily, by the vast majority of you know bands or whatever, uh, held as being important things. I think that once music, I'm talking sort of more avant-garde jazz and all that kind of stuff, once music becomes, any music becomes undanceable, you've sort of lost the point. Andrew, it's been so great to speak with you about the music, about your collecting, about your vintage passion. Thank you so much for joining us on, on This Retro Life. Absolutely, my pleasure. Yeah, I certainly can uh, wrap it on for quite some time about <laughs> the things I love. I'm sure we all can. That's it for this episode of This Retro Life. You can find us on Wooshka, iTunes and Stitcher where you can subscribe and, of course, rate and review us so it's easier for other guys and gals to find this podcast. To get more information on today's guest, head to our website, thisretrolife.com or search This Retro Life on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We have some photos and videos and behind the scenes and a whole heap more retro fun, so do come and check us out. As always, if you're a vintage guy or gal from any era and into anything from cars to collectibles, we'd love to hear from you. Go to thisretrolife.com and drop us a line. Until next time, I'm Kai Handley. Thanks for listening to This Retro Life.